Thank you for joining us. My name is Mary Tarsha, and I am here with Professor Darsha Narvaez to discuss a very exciting framework that she has been researching for the past few years now called the Evolved Developmental Niche. And what's really exciting about this framework is that it holds um, the potential to help us understand how to maximize or optimize human flourishing and it also serves as the dual purpose of being a therapeutic process, too. So not only how can we help our young, but also if there are some steps along the way that happen to be missed, we can start in applying these now. So here is uh, Dr. Narvaez with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Mary. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about um, this framework that you have been researching and developing for a few years now, correct? Yes. So we call it in uh, everyday language the evolved nest. Mm -hmm. And we think that it's uh, an idea that will help us not only recover uh, what we've forgotten, but actually heal mm. our families and our society. Yes. And there certainly is a great need for that right now. Yeah, we, we are uh, um, uh, in most analyses of the well-being of the United States, for example, they continue to show the deterioration of well-being at every mm. age. Well, at every age. So we're talking yes. not only um, young children, but middle-aged and older as well. Right, because we've forgotten the nest for quite a while now, mm. and so it adds up over the years, if you don't have this nest in early life, your biology, your neurobiology just doesn't get set properly. Your immune system, your endocrine system, your vagus nerve, which runs through all the systems of the mm -hmm. body, can be misdeveloped uh, early and then affect your health and your social capacities and your well-being in general for the rest of your life. And so the evolved nest is especially important for young children. Yes. So that brings us to a question. I mean, we hear a lot about within the media and um, within newspapers, the importance of genetics. And isn't everything just genetics? Isn't it, uh, you know, with the revolution of the Human Genome Project, which is so exciting and helping us unravel and explain why we are or why we do the things we do. So now, how not that everything? <laughs> or uh, can you speak a little bit to that? We do hear that story a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a gene for this and a gene for that. And if you have that gene, oh, oh, beware. But actually, for human psychology and for most of our even physiological health, it's epigenetics that matters. Mm. So epigenetics is, um, to put it very simply, how your genes are expressed. Are they going to be turned on or off in the kind of everyday lingo? Uh, how well are they going to actually function? Uh, you might have a gene for, for example, there's a so-called violence gene in a family that they've noted in the Netherlands uh, going being passed on generation to generation. But the violence gene, and, it, and it's related to being violent and aggressive mm -hmm. as a person, but only if you suffered child abuse. Oh, interesting. interesting. So the genes actually don't, are pretty inert without experience. Yes. And that's epigenetics. Yeah, so we're talking about the gene-environment interaction. And so when we're talking about epigenetics, we're not talking about 
um, the actual sequence of the DNA being changed, but that it's through the environment downregulated that those genes are either upregulated, turned on, or downregulated and turned off. And so we're saying that the environment is really important then, right? Um, that it has this great, powerful influence to affect how our genes are turned on or turned off. So how does that relate to the nest then? So um, in terms of specific aspects of the nest. A few more preliminaries. Oh, sure. Humans are particularly affected by their postnatal experience. Because mm. we're born so immature compared to other animals, we look like fetuses until we're 18 months of age. And that's if you have a full-term birth. So it's not until 18 months of age your head uh, plates start to fuse and become hardened. Before that time, they're loose or uh, not fused because it's expected that your brain is going to really grow a lot during that first year, first 18 months. And that means you get really smart with a well-grown <laughs> brain, right? So, And then other parts of the body, you just look like a fetus. You can't walk around and feed yourself. Like mm -hmm. other animals can a few hours after birth until around 18 months or so. Well, maybe, you know, sooner, depending. So we are really mature, which means we really need an external womb experience, mm. exterogestation in a very sophisticated way to say it. Uh, and that means for those 18 months, you want to keep the baby as calm as possible and happy while all these various systems are finishing up how they're going to function what their parameters are, what their highs and lows are, what their normal level of functioning is, what their threshold for activation is. And so we know the stress response is going to be set during this time period in the first probably couple years of life uh, and then last for a lifetime unless you mm -hmm. have, you know, some immense intervention later like becoming a monk for eight hours a day, meditating. Maybe you can change your immune system and your stress response, et cetera, but it'll take enormous amounts of work mm. later. So it's best to start off in early life with things set properly, and that's what the nest does. The nest evolved most of the characteristics over 30 million years ago with social mammals, uh, and social mammals are named for that because they're not only social, but they're mammals. They, mam they have mammary glands where they breastfeed their young. And that, those characteristics then essentially evolved a fixation. That means they stopped changing 30 million years ago mm. because they work so well to help our ancestors survive, thrive, reproduce, and continue being um, actually cooperative members of their social groups. So that's what our socialness is about, our sociality. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, too, because we're looking at evidence over not just one year or not just 10 years, not just 30 years, not just within a family or within many generations, but we're actually talking over millions of years, right, of development of a tremendous amount of evidence. 
here. So, um, but you mentioned something about the stress response. And so maybe for our listeners, that's a, a complicated word and um, is difficult to understand. And so what we're talking about is having um, our reactivity to stress later in life. And we see that those um, experiences that provide responsive care in the early years enable us to have a very healthy auto-regulated um, immune system, but also stress response. And when we see there's deprivation in those early years, like you were saying, specifically those first two years, we either see a collapse of that system or we see an upregulation, this hyper response that is taking place. And, you know, we are um, very much experiencing that all around us, as we can see. And we're all very much suffering with either one of those uh, conditions and striving very much for wanting more self-regulation and self-control. So I think that's very interesting um, how you point that out. So the stress response, when it works well, is you might get uh, uh, threat feel, feelings of threat. The stress response uh, kicks in and mobilizes your muscles to run away. Like if a, you know, a monster moved into the room or something, you <gasps> suddenly get, you know, your breath changes, your breathing. You stopped, relaxed, relaxed, stopped uh, having a kind of a restorative kind of parasympathetic kind of relaxed state, and you mm -hmm. go into this mobilized state to run away, fight, flight. And if that doesn't work, freeze or faint. Um, that's the parasympathetic uh, kicking in again. So uh, it's great. Uh, and there's a great book called uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's because they <laughs> their stress response kicks in when they're being chased by mm. a lion, mm. right? But the rest of the time, they're kind of relaxed and just, you know, maybe grazing wary. Along. <laughs> yeah, grazing, enjoying life. Uh, and so they, they don't have – they have um, a situational – stress response. But what happens when you don't have the early experience that we need that's provided through the evolved nest is you can have a ongoing chronic state mm. of stress. So oh, everything is threatening to you. Somebody walks in the room, ah, your stress response reacts because you didn't have good experiences with other people when you were early, uh, in the early years, for example. And so you're very uh, stress reactive and that puts you in a very bad state physiologically. Immune system is overtaxed. You can't be very open-minded or open-hearted and get along with others very well, except to be in some protective way mm. uh, interacting. So, mm. Yes, and um, you know we see that explained, as you're saying, like through the polyvagal theory, as understanding our autonomic system as we're different compared to other animals, such as reptiles. And so we're burning so much energy throughout the day. And um, really, we need these calming reflexes uh, or we'll be bouncing off the walls because our system is churning and burning so much. And that is why we have the vagus nerve and other things within us to calm us down. And I really like the way Stephen Porges describes it as considering the human as if you're thinking about it in terms of engines that we have like a five liter engine compared to you know reptiles have a one liter engine and so we need that parasympathetic system we need the vagus nerve to be calming us down and that's really influenced and set in those early years i see well 
Wonderful. So maybe you can um, take us through, so now we've had this introduction of how important the nest is and how critical it is for having a healthy immune system, having um, a healthy um, autonomic system, and other things. So what exactly are is the nest, and what are some uh, specific components? Because I think we're all very eager and excited to learn how can we implement this within our families. So uh, I'll go through the nest components pretty briefly now, and I think we'll have other programs where we'll go through each one more deeply. But let me first say that these are provided or provisioned by a community. This means it's not just a mom, not just a mom and dad, but it's a family, an mm. extended family, a neighborhood, and the social support of the whole society mm. for providing these things. So keep that in mind as I go through them. I think that's very relieving because as we're talking about this, we're not just saying that parents need to do more. Right, but that right. we are saying that we all are all responsible for um, the most vulnerable and needy in our society, those who are young. Yes. Right, yes. And so when you're walking in, down the street and you see a child, to recognize them and to honor them and to try to make them smile in some way and, and show them that they are in a community of caregivers, of people who care about them. Hmm. So, all right, so what are these characteristics? Well, the ones that uh, I'm going to describe have been identified by anthropologists among societies all over the world that represent most of human history. Hmm. 99%, 95 to 99%, depending on how you, well, how you count it, of our history was spent in nomadic foraging societies. Nomadic foragers are small band hunter-gatherers. Not hunter-gatherers generally, but the small bands, the ones that are nomadic, they have no possessions, they don't cultivate plants, they don't domesticate animals, they have uh, little except uh, little work. They don't do work a lot either because they live off the land and uh, harvest uh, roots and berries and hunt. Uh, and then relax quite a bit of the time. Mm. But that's another story. Sounds lovely. <laughs> it does, actually. Not too bad. Although it's quite hard to live uh, outside mm. all the time. Mm. I mean, none of us probably could do it anymore because mm. we we're so used to comfort in the, you know, of the warmth the air of our beds. Yeah, that, all, all that. But anyway, that's another conversation to talk about their social milieu because they're really rich in social uh, uh Social richness, I guess, is the way to say it. And now what we've mm. been doing to our kids and our families and our societies is giving a lot of social poverty. Mm. We have a lot of economic wealth, perhaps, lots of stuff, right? But socially, we, we are not, when you don't get the nest and don't provide the nest, it's really a poverty. Mm. So what are, what are those characteristics? The most uh, well-known is responsivity. Mm. Responsivity has been studied by psychologists for some time. Uh, that means that the uh, parent, usually a parent or the caregiver, is responsive to the needs of that child. And we'll just stick to young child now, babies and young children. Responsive to their needs, so that means you don't, they don't get too upset for the child. You move in um, and calm them down. You are attending to what they need. They signal and you respond. And it's a warm responsiveness, not, you know, signal that they signal and you hit them. Mm. This is responsiveness of a emotionally supportive way in an emotionally supportive way. 
And I think that takes, um, you know, talking about uh, responsivity, it's also, at least within the literature, both emotional and physiological attunement. And so the parents are sensing and being receptive themselves to what the child needs. And that takes a lot of listening and uh, wisdom from other people within the family as well, right? Um, helping them under helping the parents and helping other community members understand that child and what works <clears throat> and what they're what they're needing. Yep. And we know from research that having feeling supported as a parent, that the community supports you, makes you more responsive. Oh, isn't that interesting? So it's not a again, it's not the parent by him or herself. Mm-hmm. It's the community uh, that's doing. A, you know, the primary um, kind of uh, embrace of support for that uh, family. Hmm. So responsiveness has been linked then to attachment, which is a big term well studied in psychology. Attachment has to do with, um, well, it's a signal that the neurobiology is going well, hmm. that you feel secure in your relationship with the, with the parent hmm. that's being tested. Yeah, that's a really loaded statement, right? That attachment is a signal that the neurobiology is going well. That's that's how I interpret it. <laughs> yes, that's a great statement, I think. So, um, yeah, very important. Yes, but we'll get to that in another conversation, I think, mm-hmm. more about that. So another one, another part of the nest is uh, touch, so affectionate touch. Mm. And for, remember now, if we're born 18 months early, that baby's expecting to be held pretty much all the time, mm. to be physically close to the caregiver. And why do we, uh, why is this important? For all the nest components we're having, we're finding much more neuroscientific evidence. The more and more studies are showing how important each of these pieces are. So for touch, for example, Michael Meany and his lab has been studying for decades the epigenetics of touch for, Mm. you know, they focus primarily on rats, but similar things happen for humans. And for rats, um, the first 10 days of life is a critical period. The equivalent for humans is six months. And so if you have a high-nurturing mother, or it's usually mother uh, in rats, a high-nurturing mother in those first 10 days helps then set the epigenetics correctly for controlling anxiety. Hmm. And if you don't have the high-nurturing mother, whoever it is, your birth mother or not, those epigenetics don't get set properly. And so for the rest of your life, you're, you get anxious with something new that happens. Hmm. And it's only controllable with drugs. Hmm. The time, the sensitive period has passed, right? So similar things, they found that there's many, many genes that are affected by mother maternal care in the rat, mm-hmm. and it's similar for us. It's just that we're just scratching the surface on all those epigenetic things, and touch is a key part of who we are as human beings. It helps us uh, who we become because it helps us with not only the epigenetics but other things like the vagus nerve, which will also be discussing and setting that properly. So you want to be holding your child as much as possible and cuddling and, you know, being mm-hmm. with them. Yes. Touch is so important. And we um, see that you're right. This We're just beginning to understand the importance of 
of touch and the power that it has. And of course, we're talking about tender and affectionate touch here and carrying the child and the influences. And I, I know we'll come to this later on within the nest, but also breastfeeding, how this is also touch. So maybe that's a good opportunity to talk about that now. Yes, um, breastfeeding also provides a lot of touching when it's done. Um, and breast milk um, is species specific. Each, oh, isn't that interesting? each mammal has a different kind of milk composition. Ours is a thin type. There's thick and thin. Thick kinds are uh, predators will have because they have to leave their babies for a long time mm. and go get some food. And so they have thicker milk that will last longer in the stomachs of those young. But ours is thin, so it means that it's intended to be ingested frequently. Frequently, yeah. Right, and yeah. because it's full of hormones and the right kind of um, bacteria to um, populate the, the immune system, which is mostly in the gut, mm -hmm. and then to also feed those bacteria. So there's uh, various proteins and um, food sources for the good bacteria that are in breast milk to keep the good stuff going, which then sets up a great immune system. So that makes a lot of sense for any uh, mother who has ever nursed. That is why the baby wants to nurse frequently, and it's because the milk is is thin, and it's loaded with amazing nutrients and immunoglobulins and a number of other things, but also because it's thin and they're digesting it more frequently compared to other species, they're going to want to nurse more often. And I'm just thinking, of course, and this is within the framework, how that ties right back into increasing touch, right? So we're built for needing more touch and having that touch. So right there with the practice of breastfeeding, you're... Uh, doing both of those things at the same time, if you would agree with that. Yes, that's right. That's a good way to put it. And so for humans, uh, the average, so when you look at the societies around the world that provide the nest, the average length of um, for feeding is four years, which oh, is always a shocker. That is shocking for, uh, I think, for us to hear. Yes. yes, but why would that be? Well, the immune system isn't finished till around age mm. five, and the breast milk is building that immune system. Mm. So by continuing to breastfeed for longer periods of time, you're helping to build the child's immune system, um, being uh, stronger and being able to fight uh, diseases later on in life, correct? That's right. Yeah. Sure be less likely to get ill and having, well, we'll talk about breastfeeding in a, a more specifically, I think, later. So let's, we probably have to move on. Another one then that's related to this responsivity, which I mentioned is positive social support for the mother and child, especially when the baby's young, uh, for that mom to be responsive and breastfeed and so on. And positive social support is is something we expect actually throughout our lives. Mm. It's not just in the first years, but humans do much better when they feel like they belong, that mm. they feel competent to to uh, uh, contribute something to the social group and that they're respected and that they have their own autonomy, though, that they're not controlled by others, mm. right? So those things, and there's other basic needs like that that we need throughout life. But positive social support provides a lot of what we need to feel well, 
whatever our age. Even just as you're describing that, it just sounds so wonderful, right? You have a sense of belonging and contribution and autonomy. Yes. Mm -hmm. And a way to be purposeful in that social group, Mm -hmm. right? Another one is allo parents or allo mothers is what the anthropologists say. So that means other mothers. Hmm. So it's it's related then to this positive social support. So the other mothers, the allo mothers or allo parents, because it doesn't have to be a female, it could be dad, grandma, aunt, uncle, um, and other people in the group uh, who are as responsive as the original parent or parents are. So it's a responsive caregiver who's again meeting the needs of the child uh, as they come up. Now, to be responsive to a baby, you don't wait for the baby to cry. Mm. That's a late signal, right? You notice when they start to make a face or get restless that something is not right, and they're indicating they're in pain, Mm. that pain is increasing. Either they're hungry or they're uncomfortable or they're bored or something, right? So you move in then because, again, remember, we're born so young and so immature. world. How, you know, reactive and trustful of uh, trustful towards others should I be? Is the world a safe place for me? And so you want to keep the baby calm, move in right away but when they start to signal. Then the baby learns to have a calm personality. Hmm. Wow. Yes, yeah, very interesting. And again, it, it goes back to um, taking care of those needs of the infant from the whole community is coming in. Right. And the next one we can talk about is play, free play. So if you put a mammal, a couple young mammals together, whatever species, Mm -hmm. human, puppies, kittens, monkeys, they will play. Hmm. And it's a signal that they're feeling well and safe. Interesting. Then you will play. The young will play. And why, why is this so universal in mammals, especially social mammals? Because it's growing the brain. Just like breastfeeding is growing the brain, just like touch is growing the brain, just like a responsive, supportive uh, community is growing the brain, play is too. Hmm. How wonderful. And so you're saying play both in the natural world and with multi-age playmates. Right. So, so in our society. Yeah. Right. So that's really kind of key. Um So when you're young, you're learning how to control your social interactions. And so if you watch uh, puppies play, for example, you'll see them wrestling on the ground, and and then one of them will go, "Ah!" and that's a signal to the partner that you bit too hard or you did something Mm -hmm. wrong there, so lay off a little bit, right? And then you learn to be flexible and responsive to others. Oh, that's interesting. And... It's important to have multiple age playmates because younger kids are ready to learn from older, right, and to learn to play. And the older love to, you know, guide the younger in whatever they're doing. And if you have the same age playmates, although it's better to play with somebody than nobody, um, you're more likely to have uh, um, risk-taking and competition rather Mm, than the cooperative kind of learning that would go with... uh, multiple age playmates. Yes, and I've also observed this. You just see this new tenderness and gentleness, you know, with the the older kids towards the younger kids that really comes out. And it seems that the different ages are really promoting those characteristics. Yeah, I like that. Yes, it's important. And then to play in the natural world, 
we are part of the earth, and one of the things that you can see in the societies that live closer to the earth than we do, they have a greater understanding and sense of relationship with everything uh, natural around them mm. and feel much more comfortable and committed to the well-being of, of all those other non-human mm. entities. So trees and animals and rivers and such. And so that is also part of what gets established early on. Do you feel part of the earth mm. or not? Do you feel connected or not? If you're isolated inside uh, walls, you're going to miss out on a lot of what is supposed to be developing in those early years. Mm. That makes me want to go outside right now and go take a walk in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> but first, there's one more thing that we'll talk about here that's related to the early nest, and that is soothing perinatal experiences. Now, the anthropologists didn't note this in their list, but it's what was there, uh, that the birth in the nomadic foraging communities was soothing, mm. that there was no separating mom and baby, which is not soothing, no painful procedures. Why would you do that to stress the baby already and shift their trajectory mm -hmm. towards stress reactivity? No, no, no. And... They, in some of the societies that have been described by, for example, Colin Turnbull, the forest people, his book, he talks about how the mother actually went to the forest and would have a special spot when she was pregnant uh, where she would go and sing a special song to the, oh, wow. the child in the womb. And then that song would be sung to the child after birth. Oh, wow. And so that we know that babies hear uh, at least by seven months gestation. And so what you're saying and, and doing can be incorporated into who they become at mm. that time as well. So soothing perinatal experiences have to do with also, I think, care, um, as during pregnancy, staying as calm as you can. Mm. Because we know now from the research that a mother who's stressed during pregnancy tends to have an irritable baby mm. because of that stress, the stress hormones that are flowing to the baby, whatever the mom's feeling, the baby's going to feel. And then when you have an irritable baby, it's much harder to take care of an ir irritable baby than a Absolutely. calm baby, right? Sure. So then that kind of undermines the responsiveness or whatever else, perhaps, chances are. So soothing perinatal experiences as well. Yes, and that also just goes back, I think, to what we're talking about is there's so many things that um, mothers, pregnant mothers can do in order to have those soothing experiences, but also just a greater sensitivity within the culture to pregnant women, right? To be able to provide more calming experiences or more supportive experiences. And we so. used to have that. It's just not happened in the last few decades. It's gotten mm. quite stressful for everybody <laughs> in the U.S. Yes. So yes. these are the components of the nest. If, and I, my argument is that if you don't provide these components, each one's a risk factor of what you're not providing, mm. a risk factor for worse health outcomes, worse sociality, and worse morality. Your morals get very self-protective when you don't get what you need early on. Wow. And so each of them, when you don't provide it, it's under care. Mm. We could say neglect, but that's a legal term, so I invented the term undercare mm. when you don't have the nest. Wow. So again, we're saying that this goes back to the beginning, that providing these 
uh, for children early in life really contributes to optimizing human development. But if you have not been able to provide these, then there's still good news. It's still exciting. You can continue or you can start implementing many of these right now. And uh, these serve as a protective factor, right, for developing um, later difficulties and struggles in life. Right, to mitigate those. Yeah. So... Well, thank you so much. Our time is um, about up and we thank you for listening and we look forward to our, uh, our next talk.